then we create illusions. So we, we live in a world of our illusions or the delusions that become habits. And so then we suffer accordingly. So then our lives tend to be caught in the realm of delusion. <coughs> then uh, the Buddha is the awakened state. It's awakened conscious knowing, the Dhamma. <coughs> so, when we take refuge in the Buddha, then this is uh, it's not me personally, not a personal thing. The Buddha is not a person that I take refuge in. It's a, it's a convention it's a word, Pali word, but it's pointing at a reality which is awakenness, awakened consciousness. So then the, the, what this uh, encourages us to do is to wake up, to bring attention, to be mindful here and now to the way it is. Now on a personal level, the way it is, then we have, we might have, it's too cold in here, <laughs> and I, I'm cold, or, you know, you, you create uh, a sense of liking, disliking because of the temperature or the way your body is or the emotional 
uh, quality that you're experiencing at this time, the thinking process, the loves, hates, desires, fears, uh, the anger and resentment and all the other uh, conditions that can arise in consciousness. So the aim of taking refuge in Buddha is not, is not some kind of personal uh, accomplishment, but remembering the true nature, the Dhamma, the way it is. Because if we don't, if we forget that, then we're caught into the world of illusions again. And uh, so that it, the, the aim of, say, monastic form, the, the precepts that the Anagarikas uh, took this evening. This is a form, a convention, in order to help remember your true nature. Not, not as some kind of personal uh, thing, you know, that I am now an Anagarika and I've got to become something, but recognize that it is uh, a conventional form to develop encourage awakened awareness, mindfulness. That's the whole point of it. That's the purpose, the aim, is for awakened awareness, understanding, knowing the, knowing the true Dhamma. They don't have to say true Dhamma because Dhamma is true anyway. <laughs> What do you call that where you have it? There's some words. <coughs> Knowing the Dhamma. Is it an untrue Dhamma? No, no. Knowing the Dhamma. Now this word Dhamma is another foreign word taken into English context, uh, but, it's, but uh, it's a valuable word to use because we don't have a suitable equivalent in English, so we just take Dhamma and put it in, make it an English word. <coughs> so the truth of the way it is, you know, if I try to describe it and define it and, and um, go on into analysis and detail, the more you'll, you'll get confused. And so trying to define the word, make a proper definition of Dhamma that satisfies is uh, is almost impossible. It's a it's reality. So it's only recognized through awakeness, not through definition. Because when we define things, then we tend to we tend to come from views, opinions, particular conditioned attitudes, uh, cultural interpretations, personal. Uh, implications and so forth. Now that's why uh, when we take the refuges in Buddha Dhamma Sangha, it's, this isn't meant to be just another kind of addition to our uh, sense of our self-importance, but a, a, a skillful means, skillful means towards reminding it, continuous reminder. So when you look at your and you see, you know, in the Anagarikas with a white shaven head, this is a, see these, these uh, robes that you're wearing now as a reminder, not as some kind of vanity or 
style or fashion or whether it's modern or old-fashioned or beautiful or not, uh, it's always good to take the, the robe as a, as a reminder. What does it remind you of? Of Dhamma. Your, your intention for realizing the way it is. So the the uh, saffron robe and so forth, the same thing. That, uh, over the past 40 years, wearing this uh, particular old-fashioned outfit, it's been a struggle sometimes because uh, it's not the most convenient kind of thing to wear. And uh, it does look particularly peculiar in this society. But the aim is not to, not for fashion or for vanity or for anything else of that, but for awareness, mindfulness. So it helps, you know, when I start thinking, you know, I was in the early years of my monastic life, I start getting caught up in my own personal views and opinions and preferences and and so forth, and then I look at the robe and the, just the color itself, or the, the because it is uh, it is a kind of almost an archetype. It's an ancient kind of uh, apparel. You know, it's, it's uh, something from 2,500 years ago, <laughs> and even probably before that. So it helps to remind me to observe what I'm doing, to see my, to notice when I get caught up in my own loves and hates, likes and dislikes, uh, my greed, hatred, fears, desires, and so forth. We can use it as a personal attainment. I am a Buddhist monk and so forth, and it, then the, and this is this is kind of losing, missing the point of it, not for personal identity. It helps to it helps us if used properly, mindfully. Then it helps us to see the tendencies to identify. So even being a, a Buddhist monk in a non-Buddhist country. Uh, here in England, for example, they, it, it, you know, people have criticized us for you know, wearing a rather impractical, impractical garment in modern terms and something that makes, makes us always stand out in a crowd and go in the London underground. You know, you're always you know, different from everybody else. You can't just fade into the crowd, be one of the boys. The only way that's possible is here at Amrabhati when you've got a lot of monks. Or in Thailand, it's much more easy. <laughs> it is a Buddhist country. But also, the advantages in, here in, in England are that it does, you know, when it brings up self-consciousness, uh, you know, feelings of uh, when people look at me in a strange way or 
schoolboys make fun of me or people call me skinhead or whatever, then, you know, this, how can I relate to this? Because on a personal level, this is what I most dread in life, isn't it? To be made fun of. To, to be an oddball and stand out and be jeered at and humiliated. This is something I've always dreaded. The thing I most didn't want in my life. And yet, um, using this, this fear and this sense the self-consciousness and the resentment that might arise or, or whatever, the Buddha is aware of it. Meaning awareness in terms of the feeling. That's what the way my personality, my self-view operates when people insult me or make fun of me. It's like this. So you the aim then is to be aware of what you're feeling, to know it. It is like this. It is what it is. To feel self-conscious or resentful or angry or embarrassed is like this. You're noticing the way it is, which is non-critical. Not, there's no way you should feel. I can't tell you how you should feel. Because you're going to feel what you feel, you know. It's not something that I can uh, demand that you feel a certain way. But the way you feel, you, you can be aware of. And that awareness of the feeling of self-consciousness, that awareness then is the Buddha knowing the Dhamma. The self-consciousness, uh, embarrassment or whatever it might be, is then seen in terms of what it is. It is a condition that arises and ceases. Self-consciousness is not a permanent state. It's not a, has no real uh, substance to it. But it is an energetic experience, undeniably, the sense of self consciousness or embarrassment is like this. And that, that's what we call awareness. Sati Sampachanya mindfulness, awareness, apprehension, apperception, a, a way of, the, a natural way of receiving experience without attaching to it or identifying with it anymore. So in this simple teaching of the Buddha is uh, the, the problems around suffering are, we learn from that. We begin to see the cause, the causes of suffering and the cessation of suffering. We can realize non-suffering as reality, not as some unattainable goal that I hope to achieve by practicing hard by, through being a Buddhist monk, because then that is all uh, based on my personal uh, sense of my per being a separate person. But I can be aware, this awareness of 
the feeling of separateness, of being a person is like this. So this is called reflection. You're, you're reflecting on the way it is. In other words, you're observing, investigating, noticing, paying attention. Whatever way it might be in its quality, good, bad, uh, or indifferent, whether it's uh, high or low, pure or impure, or good or bad, or whatever. Trust in the awareness of it. It is what it is. And that awareness, then, as you begin, as you start recognizing the power of awareness and the purity of awareness and the stability of awareness, then the movements and changes of habit of the nature of the body or the emotional habits or the thinking mind, then it is seen in terms of anicca dukkanata. All conditions are impermanent. All conditions are, are anatta. You can't find any permanent essence or separate self or soul in any conditioned experience. The ultimate reality is realized through awareness. And that's why I start off with the, the true nature is perfect. Now those are words too. Perfection is that it's complete. Nothing needs to be added or taken away. It's whole, complete. And that's your true nature. Now when you start thinking about it on a personal level, you think, mm, that's not, I'm, I'm so imperfect. Because the, the, what we see, what we create in, in consciousness is, is the personality, uh, attachments to the energies we're experiencing through the, through the senses, through the body itself the force of habit, the conditioning process, all the rest is, is what we regard as our reality, our real world. And that is not the real world. So just notice, like, uh, reflect on this, you know, to, to um, start remembering your true nature, the true nature Dhamma is perfect. Now that's not saying I'm perfect. Because when I say I, I usually implies a me as a separate person. And my personality is any not any you know is, is not perfect, as you well know if you live with me very long. And my personality has all kinds of imperfections and is, is uh, changing depending on all kinds of other conditions for me to be happy. The happy person, good-natured, jolly, smiling, attentive, caring, that takes certain conditions for that to arise. And, and then my personality can change if the conditions aren't right. Become grumpy, moody, self-centered, 
leave me alone, don't bother me, and so forth. And then it goes through various, those are the two extremes. It can be just indifferent, don't care anymore, bored, fed up. But these are conditions that arise in cease in consciousness. So then I ask myself, do I want to take refuge in all that changing stuff? There's no end to it. And it's so dependent, you know, on conditions. If I'm going to be a happy, jolly, good-natured man, then I've got to always have the conditions that support that. And I can't demand that from the, this world that we're living in. Because the conditions are changing. And I have no control over that. Conditions change. The weather changes. Seasons change. Sometimes people praise. Sometimes people criticize. Love, hate, success and failure and all the rest. These things are a part of everyone's experience. On the conditioned plane the conditioned realm. So then the unconditioned has to be recognized as awareness. So and say that's the gate to the deathless. So the the aim of our life then is to recognize and cultivate awareness. So we use the the tradition, the forms of of um, monastic, uh, of our monastic tradition. Now they're skillful means. They're supposed to be helpful. They're not supposed to create more problems for you and make your life more difficult. Now yet we can use them like that. We can make monastic life an incredible, difficult experience and so many rules and vinaya and so many you know, restraints and, and this and that. And we can create all kinds of problems around monastic form and about tradition. But if we tend to see it like that, see it in terms of the critical mind criticizing the tradition or just, you know, feeling overwhelmed by it or uh, even getting uh, kind of identified with it. Our, you know, I'm a very sincere, earnest monk, strict with the rules, dedicated to practice, I can become very arrogant kind of monk. And that's not the purpose. To be arrogant, whether you're a lay person or a monk, is still uh, a form of suffering. In fact, an arrogant monk's probably more despicable. They kind of missed the point. In lay life, at least, you know, arrogance does, you know, sometimes that's the way we're conditioned, to be arrogant. But in monastic life, we're here not to identify and attach and become anything, but use learning to awaken, to reflect, to open and observe the way it is. Now these teachings that we use in uh, Buddhism you know, are very helpful, skillful means if you, if you will use them properly. 
And they aren't meant to take positions, you know, to form opinions and to uh, and to get caught up in endless quibblings about um, proper meanings of words and the true Buddhist teaching and all the rest, because that goes on endlessly. You hear, you know, people arguing and making all kinds of, you know, judgments about Buddhism and other religions. And that is not, you know, when we're caught up in our own personal preferences and our identity with our own tradition. Now, the tradition, you know, is a, is a convention that has uh, some kind of continuity in time. So it does have, a, you know, it's been a value of a tradition is that it carries on the teachings and the monastic conventions through, uh, through time. Otherwise, it, uh, wisdom tends to, you know, if it's not, if one doesn't develop some kind of conventional form, it tends to be forgotten. We get carried away with all the worldly opportunities that we can have in life. And the changing uh, ways that civilizations come and go, arise and fall. So in 2,500 years, imagine how many uh, civilizations have arisen and ceased. How many kings and emperors and rulers and dictators and tyrants and, and um, psychopathic rulers and revolutions and wars have gone on in 2,500 years all over this planet. And yet uh, the, this convention still manages to survive all that. It's always impressed me. You know, it's been able to kind of endure through. Because in Buddhist countries, they go through the same processes. If you study the history of Buddhism in China, Japan, in Thailand, or Sri Lanka, or India, wherever, you see it has its periods where it flourishes and then almost disappears and changes and, and is forgotten and remembered and so forth. So it, it isn't that you can, you know, reach a certain point and keep, ever, keep it on the same level of, of everybody having faith and devotion to the teaching of the Lord Buddha. But obviously there's always been enough who have sustained that through using that tradition and the convention to make it available to us here at Amaravati on this very day. Now, I personally found it very helpful to, to remind myself of the true nature of perfection, of Dhamma. Then when I say this is my true nature, I don't mean to imply this as of some kind of personal quality. It's just a remembering. It's this. This perfection is recognized through awakened awareness. It's very simple. It's not complex or difficult. It's natural. It's not a refined 
uh, state of consciousness that depends on very refined conditions supporting it. Mindfulness is never is what we can always rest in, whatever's happening, whether it's on a battlefield or in an ashram. But we forget it. We become caught in our in our emotional reactions to to the uh, to the wars, to the problems, to the society, to the people that we live with, the relationships we have, uh, our own sense of self-worth as a person, our age, our appearance, what we look like, and so forth. We we are so caught up, so overwhelmed and blinded by all these conditions that uh, say the aim of the holy life then is is to simplify it. So actually the the monastic forms, even though they might seem complicated at first, they're actually uh, leading towards simplicity, not to make everything more complicated, but to simplify. I've found in my own experience as a Buddhist monk that everything moves towards simplicity. But when I first started out as a as a new monk, it all seemed so complicated. I was a bit overwhelmed by it all. You know, trying to remember all these rules and and um, kinds of things, you know, that you have to learn in the beginning. And it seemed, you know, like a, 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 I was complicating everything. I felt, you know, like I was being suffocated by it. And my personality would react it's too much and, and was, uh, uh, I'd complain about it and feel suffocated. But the skillfulness of the teacher was to get me to look at this. He says, why do you suffer, tomato? Why, what's the cause of this suffering? They say, well, there's too many rules, too many this, that. But then... Something in me would waken and think, that's not it. Listen to that complaining mind, you know, I can't do it, it's too much. And that awareness, that's awareness to listen and to recognize that right now this feeling, these thoughts are like this, they're the way they are. And then through trusting in the awareness, you, you, you find an increasing strength in it. It has a continuity. It's a natural state. At first, I connected it with, with a very controlled situation, you know, like at a complete quiet, silence. Uh, you had to sit still and concentrate your mind and stop your thinking process in order to really be mindful. In fact, the first way I learned was a technique where you do everything in slow motion. So my first impression was that you had to live in slow motion to be mindful. 
because I connected the technique with mindfulness. But then it, you know, I got to, as I, because, nat, because mindfulness is natural, not a created state. When I, when I try to be mindful, when I think I've got to be mindful, then I'm creating myself into somebody that's trying to be mindful. But if I just trust in this awareness, the ability to observe, witness, notice, pay attention to the way it is, then this, I can, you know, is sustainable. It's a natural state. And it, it, you know, it's not asking the world to be quiet for me and life to be calm and, and supportive to me so that I feel safe and secure, but it allows me to adjust, to cope, to adapt to the changing conditions that inevitably are experienced in this human form. Now, I'm making it sound very simple and easy, and it's simple, but easy. Recognize that we're not, you know, our personalities are not simple. They're very complicated, usually. In the West, we become very neurotic. And what I mean by neurotic is that we're from a culture that's neurotic. It's not, I'm not, you know, saying that you know, it's something abnormal. It's kind of ordinary to be neurotic because we live in a neurotic society. And what do I mean when I use this word neurotic? I'm using it, my own definitions of it. <laughs> it, it. We're complicating everything. Things aren't just what they are or even the ordinary uh, instinctual human energies uh, that we have are then, we add more onto it, a, a strong sense of self-identity and criticism. So in, in our modern life, we create, we, we come from, we have this idea of how life should be as an ideal. And then how I should be as a person, if I were an ideal person, an ideal man. And then I look at the way I am, and I can only feel critical most of the time because it never fits into this, this ideal that I have of what I should be. So we, 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 we abuse ourselves, we criticize ourselves, we disparage ourselves, uh, we hold ourselves in, in, in so many uh, kind of uh, complicated ways comparing ourselves with others, with ideals, with, uh, you know, in terms of our worth, our importance, or lack of it. So that's why it becomes increasingly more complicated the more you remove yourself from just the, the natural forces of living, of survival, of love and, and hatred. These are natural kind of emotions greed, uh, sexual desire, anger, jealousy, fear. These are kind of normal, natural emotions to the human condition. 
these are, you know, then we, we say in terms of we shouldn't have them, we shouldn't feel greed, uh, jealousy, fear, shouldn't get angry, we should love everybody. <coughs> At least that's my, uh, my background, I wanted to, to be a perfect person and feel this love and these grand, these grand feelings, these noble feelings for everything and everybody. Unconditioned love. And be totally fair and just and compassionate was the ideal. But then, on a personal level, I, I seldom felt like that. Felt self-centered, angry, frightened, greedy. Shouldn't be greedy. Angry, shouldn't be angry. Lustful, shouldn't be lustful. So then it, the, the sense of oneself is, is an experience of failure, of criticism, of disparagement. So in uh, meditation now, there's a sense of our true nature is perfect. And that is, I'm offering that as a mirror for you to witness your own feeling of imperfection, of not being worthy. Because when I say this, what, what, do you, what is your reaction to it? When I say your true nature is perfect, perfectly pure, deathless. And then what, how do you emotionally react to that when I say that? <laughs> Just notice. Doubt? Uh, do you agree? Disagree? Do you like the idea? Or you think, oh, you know, I couldn't, don't dare think like that. Or what? Just notice the way that when I make this statement, say this. Or what if I said the opposite? You're all a bunch of sinners, worthless, hopeless cases. You were born in sin, your true nature is impure, there's nothing you can do about it. Over. There's no such thing as enlightenment, no way out of suffering. Life is hell. Now sometimes it seems like that, I admit, on a personal level. But that's seeming, that's how it, that how, that's how it feels sometimes, personally, but that's not how it really is. And so in, in, in a religion, the aim is to remind us of our true nature. So that's what, when we take refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha, that's what I, that's these, these words, Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, these three refuges, are not ideas to grasp or define, but they're, they're helping you to, to notice, to awaken. You say, Buddha. You can say, well, that's, well, you know, are there any Buddhas now? 
is there any are there any Buddhas in Thailand or or uh, no that this is not the time there are no Buddhas now there's just arahants are there any arahants oh, I don't think so Sotapanna's probably not just a lo- bunch of um, hopeless butuchinas. Butuchina means unawakened, unenlightened, self-centered individual human being. Now if one wants to to settle for that, but that that, that doesn't help, isn't it? One, once you settle for that one, you're stuck. And life isn't going to help you out of it. It's just going to get worse as you get older. So, just survival and intuition tells me this other approach is more useful. Now, if my true nature is perfect and pure, I'm not grasping that as, a, as, a, as some definition of me as a person. I start thinking, what does that really mean on, in the here and now? What is the purity, the perfect perfection of this conscious moment now? And whatever you think, it's not that. It's not a thought. You can't define it. You can't it's not uh, something that's changing or moving and that which doesn't change or move you can't find anything that doesn't change or move but you can recognize the stillness the steadiness the stability of awareness because that is natural it's not, not dependent not created, not personal. And it's recognizable, realizable. You can't find it as a thing. That's why when you think about it and grasp an idea of it and try to find the deathless or nibbana or, or ultimate truth or the unconditioned, you're, you're not going to, you know, you're going to end up as an agnostic or as a humanist or communist or something else atheist because when you when you try to find things in like trying to find god in as something as a thing as as a, as something you can find and and hold up and say this is it and test in a laboratory you're never going to win. You can't do it that way. The only possible, only possibility we have is not through searching and finding, but through awakening and recognizing reality. So that's why um, Buddhism is called, is named after the Buddha. Because that word itself means awakened consciousness. Now each one of you, as an individual entity, is conscious at this moment. It's a natural state, isn't it? Everyone, who's not conscious? Anyone? (laughs) 
So consciousness is, is a natural state of being. You don't create it. But then you create your personality into it. So in this conscious moment, in I am Ajahn Sumato, then that's something I'm creating. But if I stop creating anything and just pay attention, listen, reflect, notice, observe, then there's consciousness and awareness. It's recognizable. It's this. It's, it's simple. And then the complexities come through thinking, attachment to thinking, attachment to emotional habits, identities, conditioning. Then, uh, then I become a complicated personality. Now that's why in the, say, this uh, winter retreat, uh, the three-month winter retreat, this is a really um, wonderful opportunity to investigate this. You know, they've got, even though it, awareness doesn't need supportive conditions, you don't need this winter's retreat to be aware. But it's coming your way, and it uh, can be used quite skillfully if you if you uh, are willing. Because uh, that's the aim of the retreat, isn't it? Of the forms we're using, the tradition, it's all for developing and developing a confidence in awareness. It, it, it's necessary to recognize it, to know what it is and to value it, to adore it, to, to really treasure awareness so that it's, it, you know, it is your refuge and, it's, it's, uh, and, and you can uh, then integrate into activity, work, whatever, through uh, once you recognize it understand and know it, realize it, then, then, the, uh, then there's no need for even winter retreats or anything else. It's the flow of life is what we learn from. So, I'll leave you with this, to hoping it will uh, encourage, I'm trying to encourage you, and, and to, uh, because we need encouragement, we've got, we're too discouraged, we tend to discourage ourselves endlessly, and the more we try uh, in this life to become something or to get something out of it, we feel more and more discouraged by it. In other words, monasticism, it's not meant to be successful. It's not, it's not about becoming and being a successful monk or nun. 
So if if that's if that's how we, you know, what we expect from it, it's it's going to fail us. And even if even if I think I'm a successful monk, that's not a very satisfying perception. Because then somebody will come along and say, "No, you're not." And if I'm heedless, then I say, "Oh, yes, I am." Get into an argument, and then because of my skeptical, doubting nature, then somebody says, "No, you're not a successful monk." Then I, maybe I'm not. Maybe I've wasted my life when I could have been president of the United States. But we do learn from failure, you know, like uh, all of you know, have been meditating for very long, how, you know, how it, you know, what failure is like. Trying to get and get hold of something and attain and then, you know, hold on to it and, and become a really good meditator and achiever and then failing at it. Why? Because that's not it. Not it, and we're not here to attain or achieve anything, but to awaken and realize. Now that's not a matter of success or failure. Because it's not an attainment. It's an it's returning to natural state, remembering the true nature, the perfect, the perfection, remembering, knowing Dhamma directly, being Dhamma, in other words. And so I offer this as a reflection.